Hi, everyone. This is Frank Fear, and you're listening to Under the Radar. Today, we're going to talk about what I consider to be a very important subject, one that unfortunately flies under the radar to a great extent, uh, but an issue that needs to be talked about more and action needs to be taken. It's that serious. It's a book um, that I think is important for anybody who's concerned about America, its direction, uh, its directions, and how we get there. Uh, to read, digest, and think very seriously about, and then take action in whatever way you think is appropriate. The title of the book is Winners Take All. Uh, the subtitle is The Elite Charade of Changing the World, and it's written by Anand Giridas. And I'm going to spell that for you, uh, G-I-R-I-D-H-A-R-A-D-A-S. And what Anand has done um, by the way, he, for years, was a columnist with the New York Times. What he's done is he's really taken on a system that, in so many ways, flies under the radar, even though it's right before our eyes. Um, and so let's, let's frame this uh, in terms of the word that is on everybody's minds these days, and it's outrage. We're outraged, certainly, because of what happened in Minneapolis with the death of George Floyd. Uh, we're tired about the way that the police uh, have discharged their duties with respect to black men, especially. And Floyd's death comes at a time when so many minority Americans have died from COVID-19. Enough. But what's interesting is that there is not outrage with respect to another form of institutionalized behavior. Uh, and it's this. It's the way that big money donors exert control in our country and beyond. We court them, give them a fancy name, philanthropist, without thinking much about the trade-offs. If you look around your town or city or a public college campus, which is my province, you're going to find buildings and programs named after one affluent person after another. It's all good, right? Well, some of it is. It's necessary. And make no mistake about it, that money goes to good purposes. But the system, that's the issue here, the system associated with it is not. We've increasingly turned to elites to fund what the public sector used to support and no small slice of America views big money giving as a good thing. Thankfully, Jiraradas does not. His book, Winners Take All, I think is written brilliantly and it's compelling substantively. It's a must read, especially for political progressives. But make no mistake about it, Jihadas takes on a tough nut to crack. For starters, he targets very big and very influential names. Gates, Buffett, Soros, Bloomberg, Broad, Golisano, the Aspen Institute, the Walton family, and others, including corporate-linked charities and think tanks. He essentially is taking on an industry. Consider these numbers. 1.3 million organizations, nearly 10% of the economy, almost 12 million employees, and 170 plus million donors who gave $430 billion in 2018. 
And those numbers are just in the U.S. I'm talking about the massive nonprofit sector. Now, Jiradas doesn't attack the sector directly. I want to make that clear. He targets plutocrats who hold sway. And there's more complexity associated with the task he takes on. And I think this is really important. Politically, the situation he addresses isn't a creation of the political right or political left. It's a both and. We all know that the right supports reducing taxes, smaller government, shifting programs to the nonprofit sector from the public sector, and promoting charitable giving by millionaires and billionaires. But the left is supportive too, in a different way. Liberals got into the act in the 1990s during the Clinton years. That's when they began promoting the left's traditional goals of bettering the world and attending to the underdogs. That continued. But it was a matter of how. They increasingly pursued those aims in market-friendly ways. The telling tale, I think, was in Bill Clinton's 1996 State of the Union address when sounding much like Ronald Reagan, he proclaimed, the era of big government is over. Well, Bill Clinton did his part and then carried that ethic into retirement with the Clinton Foundation and especially the incredibly big money, big gathering, now defunct Clinton Global Initiative. Yuridar Hardas has a name for it. He calls it market world, which he sees as a culture and a state of mind. And he also sees it as very broad in scope. What I've been talking about and what he calls market world has plenty of adherence across a variety of sectors, business, foundations, government, nonprofits, the media, academia, and think tanks. And at its worst, or perhaps at its core, market world carries a very peculiar conception of social change. And if there is a target or basis to what Jiraharidas is writing, it's this, what I'm just going to say now. He says, market world pursues social change, principally through the free market system and voluntary action, and not via the public life the law, and attempts to reform the system. In other words, it is a private, not public endeavor. It was called another name in 2008 by Matthew Bishop and Michael Green when they labeled it philanthrocapitalism. Bishop and Green felt that philanthrocapitalism is spearheaded by capitalists and their allies. And what bothers Jiharidas most is the way that philanthropy is supportive of and hardly ever antagonistic to the very sector, capitalism, that generates wealth. The two go hand in hand. Well, that is obvious. In what would otherwise be paradoxical, except in market world, it is this. The biggest beneficiaries of the status quo, the wealthy, set themselves up to play a leading role in status quo reform. 
Well, shake your head. But there's a twist here. The prevailing approach isn't always to reform the status quo. It's mostly about patching it up. What do I mean? Well, think about it for a minute. It's simply not possible to resolve the big problems of the world, like poverty or climate change, we'll take just two, without confronting and indeed changing circumstances and systems that give rise to those problems. So what's market world's response? You don't. Sound crazy? Well, think about this logic. An advocate, Mark uh, Andrew Zoli, explains it this way. Addressing major problems head on, while being an alluring and moral vision, says Zoli, is ultimately wrong-headed. A better pathway is to help people live with the problem more effectively. That means that philanthropic capitalists prefer to help people cope. It's easier to claim success that way too. Almost anybody who has ever served on a nonprofit board or staff member has experienced what Zoli's talking about. For example, when I served on the board and then as president of a local food bank, we secured land and taught limited resource people how to grow their food. That's important work, but it's a coping mechanism. We never addressed the underlying issue of why clients were food insufficient. And when a graduate student studied uh, the matter in his thesis research, one answer he found was, well, it's beyond our mission. So one of market world's defining characteristics is addressing the negative impacts of systems without changing systems directly. And that approach is sustained in a variety of ways. For example, Girhardas writes about the predominant method used by market world's thought leaders when they attend meetings, speak at conferences, and serve as short and long-term advisors. What do they do? Well, it's what they don't do. They refrain from critiquing the system. Even academics with reputations for critique tended to give advice with, quote, watered down theories of change that were depoliticized, respectful of the status quo, and not in the least bit disruptive of systems. When that happens, Giorhardas concludes, elites are given analyses that suffer from what another analyst, Sean Hinton, calls, and this is an important concept, the banality of inattentiveness. What does that mean? It constrains, constrains the range of solutions that you look at to solve a problem. And when academics engage in that behavior, they abandon their role of public intellectual. Now, none of what I've described so far is accepted uncritically by all actors in market world. In fact, Jeraharadas writes extensively about Darren Walker's soul searching. I bring up that name because he's not an insignificant actor. Walker has served in key foundation roles, including for years as Ford Foundation's VP, and today as president of the very influential Rockefeller Foundation. 
But I think Walker is an anomaly, a leader who is in, but not of, market world. And what I think is the most important part of the book, Jiraharadas helps his reader better understand the broader storyline. In his chapter six, entitled Generosity and Justice, in it, he traces the history of elite-funded social interventions that are designed to serve the public good. Of particular note, and this was, for me, the most important read in his entire book, is his treatment of Andrew Carnegie's paradigm-changing essay called The Gospel of Wealth, which Carnegie wrote in 1889. For Carnegie, the issues we know today if he were alive, as wealth concentration, income inequality, poverty, climate change, and the like, he would view them as externalities, costs that are the result of quote-unquote progress. Carnegie, you see, was a firm advocate of trickle-down economics, and he believed that government's job was to stay away from quote-unquote the business of making money. He wrote in 1889, the talent required to do so is rare among people. He actually wrote men. And its methods aren't to be questioned. He went on to write that society's reward comes after elites have made their money, when they quote unquote give back. Carnegie lauds that activity, calling it, and I quote him, the true antidote the reconciliation of the rich and the poor. He calls it a reign of harmony. But anybody who knows about Andrew Carnegie and the history of his giving realized that giving back carried big strings, notorious for being stingy when it came to compensating his workers. All you have to do is to look at the history of the ugly homestead steel strike and that will tell you the tale. Carnegie loathed putting additional money directly into workers' pockets. Instead, he served them by building public amenities like libraries and giving to public good causes like the founding of Carnegie Tech, which is now Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Of course, Carnegie and anyone can do with money their money as they please. But it's important to understand that he was a self-proclaimed trustee of the poor. You know, it's fascinating to read what a person wrote over 125 years ago, especially when that writing is baked into contemporary thinking. For sure, today's market world advocates would never say what Carnegie said directly, and they certainly wouldn't express it as abruptly as he did those many decades ago. But their thinking is very much aligned with what Carnegie expressed. The case in point is Sanford Weil, CEO Emeritus of Citigroup, who believes that social problem solving is best left to people like us. My conclusion is the Gospel of Wealth, written in 1889, is the cornerstone of today's philanthrocapitalism and it's the belief system on which market world is based. But what was missing back then, and it's still missing today, 
is what Jihadarada sees as answers to fundamental questions. Is the playing field on which I accumulated my wealth, is it level and fair? Does the system privilege people like me in ways that compound my advantage? Well, the answers for the most part are no and no. But we need to face another reality. I do, personally. And that is many of us aid, have aided, still aid, and abet, market world in our professional lives and in our civic endeavors. There's a difference, though, between playing a role, that is being an actor in market world, and championing market world as an ethic. That's when market world is most dangerous. So what's the alternative? Well, I think Gerhard uh, Das puts it very well in several sentences. And if you have a copy of the book, it's on page 227. His answer, it is civic life. It is the habit of solving problems together in the public sphere, through the tools of government and in the trenches of civil society. Think about that. In the public sphere, using the tools of government and in the trenches of civil society. He goes on. It is solving problems in ways that give the people you are helping a say as they're engaged in the solutions. And it's not about reimagining the world at conferences. So how might we put that ethic or vision into action? Well, here are seven ways that I think are important. At the organizational level, you can survey the public regularly through needs assessments and program evaluations so that your programs and services better mesh with public preferences. A lot of organizations do that, but what I'm going to recommend next, very few nonprofits do. And that is to make sure that program beneficiaries serve on your boards of directors, not just big money donors and other influential people. So those are two of the seven ways. At the agency level, here's a third way. Congress needs to fund the IRS sufficiently to ensure that affluent Americans pay their taxes. The Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration just this week released a report that found that nearly 900,000 high-income individuals did not file taxes for the years 2014 through 2016. Result? They shorted the federal government of approximately $46 billion. There are three policy adoptions I think are very important. First, we need to keep pushing for a wealth tax. Second, we must get private funding out of presidential campaigns via 100% public funding alternative. No self-funding by billionaires. Third, restrict the amount of federal and tax state tax benefits that are gained when millionaires and billionaires make large donations to nonprofit organizations and charities. Finally, we need to reestablish 
public sector responsibility for many of the social programs that were shifted to the nonprofit sector. It's time to reverse what took hold as the combined effect of the Reagan revolution, Bush one's thousand points of light, and Clinton's neoliberalism. And anybody's whose work, professional life, or activism career spanned 1980 to 2000 knows exactly what I'm talking about because they experienced the effect that I just described. Why are all those things needed? It's because they achieve an all-important outcome. And I thought about how to describe that. And I could not outdo Gregorio Haas's description, which he describes very, very well on page 262. When a society helps people through its shared democratic institutions, it does so on behalf of all and in the context of equality. Think about that. A society helps people through shared democratic institutions and does so on behalf of all in the context of equality. I thought about that and I reduced it to four words, progressive, public, engaged, democracy. Right now in this country, we have too much elite, private, controlled, plutocracy. Thanks so much for listening. This is Under the Radar. I'm Frank Fear, and I hope our paths will cross again very soon. 